Hello and welcome to the Recovery Matters Podcast from CCAR, the podcast where putting recovery first is always the goal. Here we present interviews, discussions, stories, and speeches to cultivate the understanding and acceptance of the power, hope, and healing of recovery from alcohol and other addictions. Here are your hosts, Phil and Sandy Valentine. I am so excited for today's interviewee. I've been waiting for this since we started the podcast. No, you really just threw me off from the very beginning. You said interviewee. Is that a word? Yes, I made it up, so it's a word. I, I understood exactly what you meant. I'm excited, too. So how's your recovery going lately, though, before we get to our esteemed guest? He can wait a little bit. My recovery is going just fine. Why do you ask? I was curious. That's what a recovery coach does. How can I help you with your recovery today? You can help me by listening. Uh, Anyway, I'm excited (laughs) because I knew of this guest from a little bit from a distance since he was about seven or eight years old. Yeah. He's the same age as our oldest son. Yeah. So our, our oldest son, Joshua, went to school with TJ and um, Joshua did not become fast friends with TJ because TJ was always kind of getting in trouble. And our oldest son, anyway, can't speak for the rest of the kids. <laughs> our oldest son avoided trouble no matter what. And so even at a young age, I had my eye on this young man thinking, uh-oh, the teen years might be a little difficult. But why don't you share who we have with us? Our guest today is T.J. Aiken, and he's had two different positions with CCAR. I'll let you introduce yourself. T.J., say hello. Hey, my name's T.J. I'm a young person in recovery, and for me, that means I haven't had a drink or a drug since August 9th, 2016. I was formerly a CCAR emergency department recovery coach for about three years, And uh, I am now our Young Adult and Family Services Manager. And it's great to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you. Thank you. Do you remember the Valentines? What is your earliest memory of the Valentines? I'm curious. (laughs) If any, and it's okay, TJ. There's no pressure here. That's a really good question. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. I could share a memory. So, actually, I do remember him always being a big soccer star. And... um, always doing well with that and we weren't friends much in high school but I was already in with the bad crowd and doing my thing and mm-hmm. um but actually like probably so the last time I ever went to treatment I was at the fireworks in Manchester and my Mike had invited me over to your guys's house with Joe oh yeah and I had ended up going to treatment like four days after that. I was like totally like bottomed out and like got dragged to like a fireworks event with a bunch of people in recovery. Mm-hmm. And then I was absolutely not in recovery yet at that point. And then I went to your guys' house afterward and it was really cool. And you guys, you know, I, I felt a part of it. It was a really cool conversation and connection. And uh, I left there and used. And f- probably four days later, I ended up in treatment. See, I didn't know time. that. Did you know that? No, but I remember you had a white T-shirt on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was my famous look, the white T-shirt, yep. the white tee. He was a Fonz. <laughs> <laughs> the Fonz. Are you sure anybody would even know who that was at this point? I don't it's know. It's 2020. The Fonz was pretty cool. He'd right. kick that jukebox and get it going for okay. you. Okay. I got you. See? And he's young. He knows. So we're going back, though. So what we're all of this is that... We all grew up in the same town, right? So um, we also have another person on staff that's Mm -hmm. part of that circle, Guy Brennan. And you were friends with his son, Connor, right? Yep. And Connor was friends with our son, Joshua. And that's how it all kind of came to fruition. So tell us what happened. You said bad crowd you know you got with the bad crowd would you really label it a bad crowd they were just uh, they what's a better term they were making difficult choices <laughs> that is a good term so we were already starting to you know we were already starting to choose 
a different pathway of life than other people were. And at that point, it was a, a very much more extremely difficult, extremely, you know, tougher pathway to go down. So are you saying that kids in high school actually use alcohol and drugs? Absolutely. All the time. It's <laughs> so, probably more prevalent now. You know, I thought we were bad. And I see some of the stuff. I'm like, wow, like, you know, this is tough. Like people, you know, have a tough life. And uh, oh, it kind of goes back to coaching baseball and youth sports. Yeah. That's really what that's really where it was at, you know, because um, Josh was on that last fall ball team. Mm-hmm. So it was really cool. So it was me, Josh, Connor, Cameron, and my brother mm-hmm. on that last year of fall ball. And that was the last year I ever played baseball. And, of course, we had the best team in the league. And it was like we went like 14-0 and 0 or 13-1, mm-hmm. and 1, you know, and won and, like, the trophies. And, like, you know, because we, we were just great. Like, mm-hmm. the, the, the whole dynamics between great coaching yeah. and uh, good players just needing the, the right connection. You really awesome. point out the dichotomy. Oftentimes you think that people could be addicted or when they're addicted they're – non-functional but we know that mr brennan guy was the coach and he was in the middle of a run Mm -hmm. i think your dad was assistant coach right he was kind of not the healthiest person either making a lot of choices yet they were incredible coaches they really i was watching from the sideline a person in recovery i couldn't really tell that they had issues i mean guy was always wearing the dark glasses and didn't talk that much (laughs) but when i saw him with the coaches with the kids he was really really amazing he was a great father too yeah same thing you know my dad always did the best he could with what he had yeah you know and then the same thing it's like along the lines of like you know we automatically look i was watching rebecca's story again after on the way over and Mm -hmm. like just really like i like how she says I don't know why I just thought of this, but, like, I like how she says heroin, mm-hmm. right? So she just says heroin. She doesn't always say, like, drugs or alcohol. She, like, comes out and says heroin, and why? I'm a recovering heroin addict, and it makes my skin jump a little bit because of stigma, right? And it's like, yeah, that what she's doing is she's normalizing the word, mm-hmm. right? That, like, of course, you know what I mean? Like, we're in the middle of a huge opiate epidemic. You know, I was addicted to heroin at 16 years old for the first time. That's amazing because... It brings out in me this idea that I was, I'm okay with being an alcoholic, Mm -hmm. but even after (laughs) like 30 plus years of recovery, to say cocaine addict is like a whole different thing. But I'm a lot better with it than I ever was. And I think that's probably from watching all the narcos on episodes on Netflix, you know, and saying, yeah, I did that Bogota, (laughs) Colombian cocaine. Yeah, I did, you know. I helped them. <laughs> so, Sandy, he's talking about high school, and that's where it all started with me, mm-hmm. is that I started to smoke a little marijuana, then we would drink like two, three times a week, didn't get into any other really drugs in high school, but we definitely partied all the time, you know, like we had our place, the Nike site, and yep. there would be, you know, 50 cars up there at the night, and the cops would come up, and we all drive away and scamper. You were really heavy into stuff in high school, weren't you? (laughs) (laughs) He's making fun of me. (laughs) So Grease the movie came out. Maybe maybe somebody won't remember Font, but remember Grease the movie. And so they used to sing the song, Look at Me, I'm Sandra D to me, because I was such a goody two-shoes. I was basically incredibly terrified of my father, Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't have my first drink phil valentine until the december of my senior year and how old were you 17 so that's a little different uh pathway considering tj said he, you were hooked on heroin at 16 yeah it was already too late i've how already been happen? through treatments how did that happen I, I mean, I'd like to say, like, there's a direct answer, like, oh, the, you know, this and that. <clears throat> it's kind of like the way of the spirit, right? That, like, this drug led to that drug led to that drug. Like, so getting into smoking and drinking and, like, you know, I, I always thought, like, smoking weed and, like, I always thought that, like, that was going to be, like, this chair. Like, that was something that I cherished so much in my life. And it was, like, one of the – and then it's funny. Then I got – I was, like, I could never give this up at that age, right? And then as I grew, you know, like – I couldn't even ever imagine smoking weed again. I like, 
I, like, I think about times now that, like, I would be like, oh, yeah, I want to smoke weed, you know, whatever, whatever. And I'm like, yeah, then I'm going to get paranoid and be watching out the windows for the rest of the night. And it's not, it's no longer fun and enjoyable for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I've lost that. Um, but, like, <clears throat> being open to different substances and then, like, always putting on a, putting that line in the sand. <laughs> open to different substances. <laughs> like, we say open to different pathways of recovery. You are open to different substances to use Mm -hmm. and i think i was too uh and the heavy addiction for me was in the late 70s early 80s and for whatever reason my higher power i believe never exposed me to heroin because if i was drunk enough or high enough and somebody had heroin i would have done it i've never done it I dropped acid th- on three separate occasions, and out of all the things that still appeal to me this day, <laughs> you know, a little... I'm uh, learning something new. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the one that was like, whoa, but uh, um, a little LSD, that was, a, you know, I, I'm only speaking my truth. And they may have to cut this from the podcast, <laughs> no, because it is a recovery podcast, and maybe that's why... I, Shouldn't watch all those Grateful Dead episodes and stuff on uh, long stream. This has been a big then. week for us. Now I, I hear this for the first time, and I, I just learned this week that Phil was in the chess club at Manchester High. Okay. I, don't, I don't know if the chess club came your and, way, TJ, when you were there. <laughs> and And middle school. Yeah. I absolutely love Manchester. I think Manchester's are really cool. I'm also like, I don't know, I was thinking about it, I was like, I was thinking about my group of friends and like it was just extremely diverse. Like there was like me, another white kid, <clears throat> two black kids, um, another <clears throat> who who you couldn't say um, they didn't you couldn't call them African American because they weren't they were they didn't generate from Africa. Mm-hmm. You know there was a gentleman who um, was of like Eastern some type of descent. Like we had like a whole entire like like it was like you know like it was like a rainbow it was really yeah. really cool of like whatever and like you know my my home was always open to all different types of people and like it's not like a it's not like a terrible city it's a really cool city there's like always stuff to do and like i, I just loved manchester so much and like the the family heritage you know a lot of like growing up and like it's just really cool always loved manchester for some reason i think it's still it was at least 2 years ago it was the 13th most diverse high school in america that's awesome yeah that's really cool. So I'm trying to tie in your early kind of addiction story a little bit. Go ahead. How'd you start? And Or at, another question is, why do you think you started? That, those are both great <laughs> questions. <clears throat> um, I don't know. So like this drug kind of led to that drug that like, well, how you did know. you do the first one? What was the first one? Smoke and weed. I always loved smoking weed. Well, like, how do you, you, so the first time you smoke weed, you don't love it. I did. Because you can't put smoke in your lungs yeah. without, like, coughing up a storm <laughs> and saying, what is going on? It just doesn't happen. Well, I wanted to try to feel different. Like, I wanted to, like, alter my state of reality, right? That, like, I, you know, I, like, always felt like a square peg in a round hole. And, like, you know, it's, like, you know, like a very different group of friends, right? That, like, you know, we all were, like, we all looked so different, but we were all kind of the same, right? The so, island like, of misfit toys. Yeah. And you'd get together and like smoke and like it was fun and like you had a different connection with each people and like it kind of like lightened the mood and you know it was like a cool thing and it was like an activity to do right do you uh were you an anxious kid at all did that make it go away or were you fearful or were you just looking to feel good all the above really absolutely Mm -hmm. like it was like oh this is really diving deep but like i don't know like it's always like the spiritual malady is my favorite discussion on that about like I always felt like a square I I feel like I was just born alcoholic addict right that like I was waiting for that time to be introduced to substances you know what I mean like I felt like you know I was a, I was a young kid and I would I'd get 20 bucks from mowing the lawn and I'd run up to Sam's food store you know across the street from the Baptist church mm-hmm. on East Center yeah and I would go in there and I'd buy 1975 worth of candy. I'd get a like a quarterback and I would go home and I'd eat all this candy till I'd get sick. And then I would do it again next weekend. You know what I mean? Like it was never enough of like a, 
you know, it was like looking for something outside of myself. I was destined to do that till I found like a, an extremely powerful substance that took everything from me, you know? So your first substance was actually sugar. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, my existing substance is definitely sugar. I mean, hey, my existing substance is nicotine. So it's quitting smoking cigarettes is harder than quitting heroin. You know what I mean? Because, I mean, if I look twice, you know, you guys would look at me, like, people would look at you like six heads if you stopped off to buy some heroin, but like, oh, I'm buying a pack of smokes, whatever, whatever. You know, you don't, like, walk up and see people doing heroin usually. <laughs> you know, it's not like a, you know, a thing. I Like, you walk up and it's like, oh, they're smoking a cigarette. Oh, let me bum a cigarette. Next thing you know, I'm like, I can't, you know, I'm either smoking a pack and a half of cigarettes a day or I'm not smoking at all. What are you doing right now? Uh, nicotine lozenges, harm reduction. Oh, yeah. I'm doing harm reduction. That's pretty good. I like it. That's why I like it. How's that working for you? Not bad. Uh, all right. Still yeah. moody. Yeah, yeah. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you could uh, call my girlfriend and she'll tell you how good I'm doing. Uh, it's always the case, right? You can put on the show, but how are you at home? That's always the question. And that's the hardest part, though, right? Is that like, you know, the whatever, like the feelings and all that stuff is that like, you know, it's easy to say this and then do that kind of thing. Right. And like mm -hmm. coming into it's like one of the biggest things I've learned from recovery, you know. So what happened? Where did all that use and the heroin use, where did it lead you? You talked about your first treatment, but you went to several treatments. You've been to other places that might have. Yeah. I mean, I spent seven and a half consecutive years of my life, seven and a half consecutive years without a day off, either in jail, out on bond, on parole, or on probation. Seven and a half consecutive years without a day off. And you ended up in jail because of? Stealing firearms and selling them to drug dealers to get heroin. How old were you? 19. 19. When did you smoke that first joint? Probably 14. 14. So from 14 to 16, you went from smoking a joint to being a heroin addict. Yes. And from About six, six... Halfway through my 16th year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then from 16 to when you were arrested? 19, I went Three into years. prison for the first time. It's a pretty fast progression. Yeah. And like, so like... I don't know. I just thought about like when they say like... So now being like the young adult and family services manager... Everybody's like trying to label, you know, young adult, young adult with an age group, mm -hmm. right? A lot of people just try to be like, all right, well, we're looking at this and that for young adults. And I'm like, I don't really age group young adults because like, you know, at 16, I was doing heroin and like that would be considered youth. But like at that point, like, you know, I was making adult decisions and ended up in adult jail, you know, 23 and mm -hmm. one with a, you know, $100,000 bond, right? That like... Those type, like, why do we like, it's where we fit, right? It doesn't have to be like an exact kind of thing. Yeah. What is 23 and one? That's 23 hours a day in, in a, in a cell. Eight by seven, I think, or 10 by seven and, or 10 by eight is Connecticut's thing right now for level four inmates. And one hour exercise, right? Not even always exercise. It's under like a day room. It's into a bigger cell. It's crazy. Jail saved my life, though. I'm actually grateful for my experience in prison. Tell us how it did that. Knock on wood. Um, I think it's, you know, this is another thing that, like, I think about all the time. But, like, so, like, it, it got me away from the substance long enough to be interested in recovery as well as save my life from overdosing. Have you overdosed? I've never had like a blatant direct like needing Narcan overdose. And like, I mean, you know, I was an IV drug user. Mm -hmm. And I've Narcan plenty of people back to life, you know. Wait, what? I've Narcan people back to life for sure, you know. Anybody close to you? Absolutely, family, for sure. And uh, I've experienced other parts of my family Narcanning other parts of my family back. You know, it's, it's crazy. My, my brother tells a story about like, Losing count, the, uh, my brother got sober at 20, and he's been Narcan more times than he could. So he would run out of fingers and start taking off shoes to count with toes on the number of times he's been narcan who ended up getting sober at 20. I was with him the first night he got out of treatment. <clears throat> he, 
he was like probably 16, 17, and we were using, and I woke up and he didn't. And I looked over and I picked him up out of a chair and I put him on the ground. And like, this is before like Narcan was like, before they, you know, um, before it was up the nose, it was in the leg. And I remember like going and calling 911 and getting him and bringing him up there. And like the cops came and hit him with the Narcan and he popped out. And the first thing he does is he looks at the cop and he goes, well, who the hell, who the hell let you in here? You know, and the cop like took that and and like was extremely offended. And then like, you know, as time goes on and like he ends up getting sober and being like 20 years old and sober. And then like people want to put limits on Narcan, you know, and it's like easy to say when it's not your son. Right. Or it's yeah. easy to say when it's not your brother. It's easy to say when it's not your relative. And it's easy to say when it's not you, you know, because like I'm going to tell you right now, if my tax money is going towards Narcan, bet your ass I'll pay taxes, you know. Because mm -hmm. you never know. That's a great point, right? You talk about compassion fatigue with first responders. Mm -hmm. They they start to become immune to what they see when they're going back to the same person again and again. But for you and your brother, you still have decades of life ahead of you in recovery. And, and for you in particular, contributing towards other people's recovery, mm -hmm. that had that not saved your life, saved his life, whatever happened. Narcan saved the life of three close family members who now have are in long-term sustained recovery. I don't know how many we have on staff now. We have a, several, right? I mean, that's a cool part about like doing this kind of, you know, being able to hire the type of people that we can hire, right? Because I go in for my interview for the emergency department recovery coach, I'm like, please don't ask me about the felony. Please don't ask me about the felony. I don't want to tell them the story. Mm -hmm. And then I get up there and they're like, okay, have you ever been convicted of felony? And I was like, look, here's the deal. I'm a recovering heroin addict. And, um, you know, I had taken these, uh, you know, I strung out of heroin. And, you know, and, and like I had sold these guns to a drug dealer and they turned out to be stolen, obviously, right? And blah, 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 blah. And they're like, um, great. That's awesome. And I'm like, you know. <laughs> I don't know if we said that's awesome, but we were probably like, thanks for telling us that. Right? You were like, we don't call that a record. We call that a resume and you're well qualified for this position. Right. And I do say that often. Yeah. That's awesome. And the other part too was when we hired you, how long were you in recovery? Just under a year and a half. Right, and so you were, I always use you as an example of a lot of places want to say you have to be sober for like two years. Or a year or whatever in order to work. And if we had ever put that type of policy in place, it wouldn't have made sense because you were such an ideal candidate to work in the emergency departments because of your history, your experience, and your ability to connect with people. And, and and so I, I still am baffled why we put those restrictions on the workforce. Isn't it illegal too, right? I mean, uh, it... I I think from when we've consulted attorneys, you can't make that uh, like any health Written condition yeah. or medical condition. You can't make uh, you can't discriminate against that. No, it's discrimination. It's people in recovery discriminating against other. It's people uh, in recovery right? per perpetuating a stigma. That's true. It's wild. So, TJ, you talked a little bit about feeling like a square peg in a round hole, right, mm -hmm. before you started using. And then you used, and then you got in recovery. Do you still have those feelings? No. And, and what's different? What's different in your life? Connection, God. Um. I don't know like that's that's a really so that's the thing so I get sober right and I'm like I fill my life with what I think is substance right so like I work hard and like I do all these things and I get all these nice things and then like you know it's crazy how like the a layer of the onion comes off and then like at three and a half years in recovery I'm like sitting and I get out of the shower and I'm looking in the mirror and I'm like damn like you know I don't know something's my like just not liking who I am still and like, cause I filled like so much of my life with like fake, you know, cause I got the house, I got two cars, I got, you know, all this stuff. And like, I go upstairs, I got like boxes of watches and jewelry and clothes and all this shit. And I'm like, I don't even care about any of this stuff. I don't even care about any of it. And like something my sponsor says to me is like, you know, people who do self-esteem, 
people people build self-esteem by doing esteemable things mm-hmm. you know so i went and that day i literally got dressed jumped in the car and like i don't like that uh, like so here's the other thing too is like you do something nice for somebody and you don't tell anybody about it mm-hmm. so i kind of want to tell you guys what i did but then not, like i'm not but gonna then you'd be telling us about yeah. it <laughs> But you went and did something nice for somebody. I did something really nice for somebody who I, re- who I gave somebody a really good opportunity. I did something above and beyond for somebody to mm-hmm. really set them up for success. Nice. You know what I mean? And that immediately sprung this other thing into effect of like, you know. I know. Well, recovery's been good to you. You do have a lot of nice things. Mm-hmm. I mean, recently I saw a picture of you with a signed jersey from Jerome Bettis. So, yes. come on. I mean, really? <laughs> <laughs> the Steelers? Come on, dude. <laughs> really? I just had to be different, too, in the same thing, you know? <laughs> I hear you. You can't not like the Pittsburgh Steelers. Come on. So, we hired you. Yep. And I think one of the first times we talked maybe was at the Recovery Coach Academy, or I'm not sure. But talk about when you first came into contact with CCAR and what that first role as an emergency department recovery coach meant to you and any highlights or stories about that? That's a good, that's a good, um, that's a good story. I mean, so I was hanging around an all recovery meeting on Thursday night at Pathfinders all the time. You were going there all the time. I was in and out sober 30, 60, 90 day. I was like the 30, 60, 90 day. Oh, yeah, that, and I remember your like uh, last relapse story was like, it still blows me away. I don't know if you want to share that or not. It was, you know, it was just like, you know, picking up and, and using and then like, you know, and like getting involved and like being somewhere I shouldn't have been. Probably. Was that a story about you went in and found your your father and your brother? Yeah, so they were using. Yeah. And then, like, my brother was, like, overdosing. And then, like, you know, I grabbed some dope and... Well, you revived him yep. and, you, and, and you knew the MTs were going to be there. And I grabbed some dope. And, and you just put it in your pocket yep. so they wouldn't see that part of it. Yep. And that's what you ended up using later on. I went home and used. And the, But that was the last time, was mm-hmm. it? Did you, or did you have one more after that? Um, one more that, relapse after that. Because then I came back around. I was doing good for about another 30 days. And then I picked up and I couldn't stop and I went on like a two or three week run. Mm-hmm. And then I met a gentleman who used to work for CCAR in a different capacity at that all recovery meeting. And he and uh, he gave me his card and he could tell I was strung out. And he was like, yeah, call me, kid. Like, you know, you can call me whenever. Like, let's connect. And like, What's that Jim? Jim. Yeah, wow. And he was like, um, I got wicked strung out and I wanted to call. So I was like using, using, and using. And, like, I had burned, like, just burned it all down. (laughs) Burned it all down. And I was like, all right, this is what I'm going to do to get everybody off my ass. Is I'm going to go to detox, and it'll be perfect. And I planned it out because I was technically in an IOP for probation at that time anyway. And I was like, I'm going to get, I'm I'm not going to get sober. I'm just going to detox. And, like, I'm not going to do heroin anymore. I'm going to drink. And, like, I'm going to go to detox. I'm going to get all this stuff out of me feeling better. And, uh, you know, so I picked up the phone, I called Jim and he's like, Hey, what's up? And I'm like, Hey, I'm strung out on heroin and I need help. And he's like, okay. So, you know, how, you know, how can I help you with your recovery? I'm like, I think I need to go to detox. And like, he's like, okay, like, let's do it. And then like, you know, the thing about being a C-car recovery coach is it was like, boom, support. And it was like, you know, asking me that types of questions were like, and then within seconds, I had a list of detoxes, and I was then I called my sponsor and got a ride, and like, you know, I was in detox within twelve hours, right? That like it was that perfect role of like, you know, I called him before I called my sponsor because I knew I was about to get it from my sponsor, you know, because he hasn't heard from me for three weeks, so he knows what I'm doing. But I'm holed up in a house shooting dope, and like coke and benzos and alcohol and like just anything and everything, you know. And, like, when somebody's using it, there's nothing, you know, you can try to support them all you want, but I was trying to do my own thing, you know. That's a part about recovery coach and mm-hmm. that. Like, then I became ready. and I was like, all right, what do I need to do? And he organized me enough. I went to detox. I went out. I was doing a bunch of IOP stuff. And he kept calling me and calling me and trying to get me to go to CCAR in Hartford. I was, like, brushing him off. And, you know, um, 
when he sees me at the all recovery meeting, he's like, you know, you're going to be a great recovery coach someday. You just don't know it, you know? And then, like, I thought he was chasing me around because I owed C-Car a bill for getting recovery coached. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Like, I thought he was calling me. Like, the guy wanted to see me succeed. That's why he was calling me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I was, like, totally flabbergasted. And then, like, I was in that IOP, like, that second to last day, that last day or something like that. And, then, you know, my counselor hit me with that, like, you know, like, I was like, I could just teach this stuff. And he and he hit me with it like, you know, I was like, I, I've been here. I, I've been in the same outpatient for the ninth time. And he said, you know, hit me with that. And I was just like, and I was like, I've done this so many times I could teach that. And he's like, why don't you go out and do that? Why don't you actually go out and do something with your recovery? And like, you know, my whole recovery story and telling thing. And like, you know, I went through that thing and like scared of being in Hartford. And, you know, it's just so much. I remember walking into Secar in Hartford and like being greeted by Michael Serrano and him saying the same exact thing. You're going to be a great recovery coach someday. You just don't know it. And like I had probably like 30, 60, 90 days of sobriety. Like I'm still like pale as a ghost, you know. You know, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I work with students in recovery at UConn and I can't tell you how many come to me and have already encountered you along the way and felt the warmth, your willingness to share and support. They're like, oh, TJ? Hey, I met TJ. <laughs> and by the sounds of it, you are covering some serious territory in Connecticut going to meetings because uh, these folks have come from all different towns and, and have met you. Um, and we had an incredible experience once we know we we talk about a warm handoff as a recovery coach, how mm-hmm. to make a connection, and because you were in the emergency department at Wyndham, you met a student who needed some support and connected them with UConn's recovery community, and and uh, he attended for a while and then graduated last year. So, so awesome. Yeah. So talk about your three-year stint as a recovery coach. How did you become interested? Besides people saying you were going to be one, <laughs> and talk about the training a little bit, and then you talked a little bit already about the hiring process, um, but talk about the training and your interest in it and what the three years were like. So, so like, my interest in it was that, like, I mean, here's the thing is I knew if I went to CCAR and volunteered during the day, like, it was, like, almost as, it was not almost, it was as good as a meeting for me, mm-hmm. Right. And that, like, I could do the meeting there. And that, like, I knew I wasn't going to get high that day. If I woke up, got my ass to see car, I wasn't going to use. So, like, I did that for a while. And, like, I just went to see car. And, mm-hmm. like, that's just what I did. And I figured out what to do when I got down there. You know, and then I met Art. Mm. And uh, that that really changed the game. So, Mike was, like, me and Mike were sitting down one day. And he was, like, yeah, so, like, you know, we got arts group. And I'm, like, here's the deal. I'm out of here. I'm not doing arts and crafts. You know, and he's like, no, no, like arts group, like, and I'm like, yeah, whatever. And then I sat in this group and like, he walks in and like, like within the first 30 seconds, I remember, so he, he was telling the story about being 30 years in recovery, he talks about self-care, right? Like, uh, recreational self-care and stimulation self-care and that like, he's telling the story, he goes, you know, here I am 30 years in recovery, 30 something, 40 something years in recovery. And I'm like driving home and I had needed something for my eye that I'd neglected for so long. I'm driving home from a recovery coach academy doing my job, but I'm driving with one hand covering just like I used to do when I'm drunk. And here I am, I have this flashback of being drunk, driving with one hand covering so I could see to get home. I'm doing the same thing I am in recovery and addiction 30 years into recovery. Because people, when I talk about self-care, I teach you, we teach best what we most need to learn. I'm not perfect and I don't pretend to be. This is my experience. And I was immediately like, like fireworks going off. And I'm like, like, this is it. Like, this is what I want to do. And I was like, yeah, like, I want to do this. And I sat and I seen Jim and I was like, yeah, like, I'm in for the long haul. What's up? Yeah, TJ's talking about uh, Art Woodard, uh, recently deceased Mm -hmm. and a dear friend of mine and Sandy's and C-Cars. Uh, but he leaves an incredible legacy. And when you spoke those words, I could hear him saying that. <laughs> and he's saying it with humor, too, because yes. he's, he's making fun of himself. Like, <laughs> well, I'm driving home, covering what I mean, He's just a wonderful man. Wonderful man. Say so that, that might, like, 
you know, there was all these other times. And then, like, one time I was in Manchester Hospital getting blood work done, and the whole crew was in there. And I had met Jennifer, and I was like, yeah, like, these guys are it. These, these guys are the elite, you know? They're saving lives. And, like, well, they're helping people save their own lives. Mm. That's it. And their presence yes. is bringing something in. And I was like, I want to do this. So what? So how'd you end up working? Um, they posted a job, and I was like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not smart enough. I'm not this enough. I'm not that enough. And John and Nate, the center manager, and at that time the volunteer coordinator, mm-hmm. um, like, yeah, you need to apply for this job. And Nate's like, listen, I've been bragging you up, <laughs> and if you don't apply for this job, you're going to make me look bad. And I'm like, nah, you know, whatever, and I give it another week. And I came in there the day the job closed, that Friday, and Nate's waiting for me at the door. And he's like, did you apply to that job yet? And I'm like, no, and John's waiting for him. And, you know, they both start laughing. They're like, all right, well, we got a computer right over there for you. Write your cover letter and your resume and put your heart into it and do this thing. And, like, you know, I sat down. I poured everything I had into it, reviewed it, got it out, and I put it in probably with, like, three or four hours left to go on the time, you know, to get in that job. And ended up getting a call and going through it and going through the interview process and the interview process and then, like, Getting a call, and my mother actually retired three days before I got that job, and the roles in the house switched, and I helped her save money, and I, you know, I, I paid for all the stuff in the house, and I was able to like that job saved my family. That that job helped my mother retire because my mother could go down south because I, you know, paid for everything in the house so she could save some money and move down south and retire. You know, so Ccar saved my family too. You know? Three years. What are some of your highlights of emergency department recovery coaching? Uh. Connection, support. Um, my favorite thing to do is like be open in recovery and be me. You know, just be 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 like a person in recovery. I'm cool. You know what I mean? Like not like cool, cool. Not like the Fonz cool. <laughs> <laughs> you got Fonz cool, TJ. You know, but like, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I'm cool, right? And like, I'm not like when you see a heroin addict, you don't see, you wouldn't have seen me till I talk about my story. And then like, you know, I heard the security guard asking me something one time in front of a whole bunch of people about drinking. I'm like, no, I'm in recovery. You know, this and that, and like automatically, like, you know, like felt as if he could never talk about drinking in front of me and I'm like listen like you know you're not gonna like you're not gonna talk about alcohol and I'm gonna be like oh my god he said alcohol and hit the package store on the way home you know (laughs) (laughs) like bringing a comfortable presence of recovery that like I am just like everybody else but I have took a different route to get here and like helping people achieve respect in a hospital setting you know what was a typical day like? Describe a typical day for an emergency department recovery coach. Um, clock in it. So your I was your first shift Eastern Region. That was typically my go-to. We clock in, we jump on, we connect with the dispatch service, see what they got going on, see if they got anybody in anybody ho- in hospitals ready to go. Um, usually they do. I'm Eastern Region, Norwich, New London. Love my love my Norwich, New London, Willimantic <laughs> area. Um, if they have somebody to go, we go down there. You know, and um, go wherever we're needed. We sit down, we pull up a chair, you know, and talk and talk recovery and like make a. I'm a very solution orientated, you know, person. Like if this is what you want to do, let's do it. And if you're willing to put in the work with me, I'm willing to help, you know, and whatever that took, you know, and we help. We help people help themselves. Do you find family members get involved? with the recovery coaches? Oh yeah, all the time. And how does that go? <laughs> what, what are the pluses and wishes around family members? Well, you know, that's the thing I think about it is like, it's almost impossible for somebody that's not in the midst of it to understand. You know, it's like, you know, like why doesn't my son want to get sober? And it's like, well, why did I do heroin after I just did six months in prison? You know what I mean? Mm. It's like, I can't, you know? It's like if I could, I would. Uh, am I ready to receive? It's being about being able to re- being ready to receive help. It's open to help, letting help help, right? Yeah. Help on helps terms is the other part about that, right? And then I have to treat people like a resource because if they don't want that type of help, they don't 
have to receive. This is America, right? Like, Well, that brings up a good point. You know, I work, my core of my recovery is 12 steps. Mm-hmm. And some of my team, that's the core of their recovery. And we're always having to talk about the difference between a sponsor and a recovery coach. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's hard if you've been a sponsor, which typically treat people as recipients, it's hard to turn that off and treat them as a resource. So, you, I mean, you must have faced that challenge because I know that 12 Steps was a big part of your journey. I'm a big 12-step guy. I love 12 Steps. I love tw- all 12-step literature, you know, for the most part. And um, I'm in a big Step 6 and 7 group about Drop the Rock. And uh, it's funny, last week we read this thing about if only he – I don't know. Like, I feel like it's sometimes like uh, the idea of like truly being a sponsor. You're supposed to still treat, you know, if you were to truly be a sponsor, like you were you to to be helping people get to where they want to do through. Yeah. So you'd still be a recipient because it's 12 step based. But like, you know, one of the things it had like a quote about like pride and ego kind of thing about like, if only this person would be willing to do it this way then they could truly see or something like that about like, you know, the thing about recovery coaching is that like, it's a total different aspect and it's, it's very hard to switch. And how did I do it? I don't, I don't even know. I mean, you kind of just, you be you. I think one of the things when we established the emergency department recovery coach program was we gave the coaches one task and that was to plant a seed of hope. And then all the other results would follow. And when you see a, a young person like a TJ s- pull up a chair, sit down across from you and say, you know, I was here two years ago. <laughs> same, po- same place, same hospital, same room even maybe sometimes. Um, how can I help you with your recovery today? And that's really, I mean, if the, the person in recovery says, well, I need to go back to 12 steps and said, well, let's find a meeting. What if they say, I want to go to detox? And so to me, the difference between a recovery coach and a sponsor is a recovery coach works over a variety of pathways, multiple pathways. A sponsor just works within that 12-step framework. And so the recovery coach has many options open. What are some of the other options that you've seen or are part of your recovery, um, say in this area, that you've seen people kind of thrive and do well in? It's very well said. Um, Celebrate recovery. Mm -hmm. That's like one of the most, that's a different type of 12-step fellowship. Um, Worked with a woman in New London Hospital Still talk to her this day. She's been sober for like two and a half years. Um, and she wanted to go to, nat- she wouldn't go to any treatment center detox ever but Natchog. And I worked like two days round the clock to d- make it happen. Bed came up, she changed her mind. And I was like, you know, like banging my fists on the table. <laughs> and uh, And then she reached out and she called me and she was like, what was that celebrate recovery thing you told me about? And I was like, yeah, so it's not AA. And this is, she's great. I'll never go to AA ever again in my entire life. So I'm open to this. She went there and I get the, and I get the text message. She goes there with her husband who he can go for family support, right? And Mm -hmm. go with her and they would go together. And it's like a, you know, their type of fellowship. And like, she found it. And like, I'll get that text every six months, every year. Um, and I remember getting that text that night. She left that that thing. She goes, you truly always had my best interest in mind. The hospital only seen me as a number, you know. And, like, you know, granted, it's a different approach, right? So, like, of course, you know, it's a clinical setting. So, of course, a clinical setting and clinical staff have an idea, like, this person needs detox from alcohol. Of course, that's their type of that's their type of view and their that's their job, right? So like I'm never gonna blame them for doing that, right? So somebody comes into a hospital under the influence of alcohol, it's like they need alcohol detoxification services. They've came to this hospital for that. But in our different role in a different aspect, like we try to help people um, identify, then connect to a recovery need. 
How many people have you seen, did you, have you seen personally in the hospital? A lot. No, but what's the number? You knew it at one time. A thousand at like two years, I think. I was about at a thousand. A thousand individuals that you met in the emergency department that was there because of an alcohol or other addiction problem that requested a recovery coach. Yes. You alone, and you're one. You were one of how many coaches? Uh, I was one of the. I was the third wave of hirees, but I mean now we have like seventeen. Seventeen. Yeah. So I mean it's almost impossible to keep up because I'm like, oh, we got seventeen, and then they'll be like, oh no, we got eighteen, and we're in twenty-seven hospitals or whatever, right? You know, so it's like, oh, you know, um, but yeah, so probably a couple like a thousand plus at least. So reflect on that. I mean, Sandy, what do you think when you hear that number? I think it's extraordinary. You know, you think about how many times you couldn't count how many times you used Narcan to save a life, right? With no identification on, on how they made out except for the people closest to you, maybe. Mm-hmm. And and you met with a thousand plus people and you're n- never going to know really for all of them what you did in that moment that might have saved their life just by the interaction with you, right? The first person I ever seen in the emergency room ever, it's a really good story. So he had overdosed and I'm still friends with him. So I still see him, you know, I'm still like, you still see him all around all the time. And like I see him on Facebook and like, you know, he's doing really well. And um, it's, uh, he, so I'd met him in the hospital after a, overdose at a porta potty at work <laughs> and uh you know they called this in like got one ready he's not really here but it, he's not really wanting to talk but his girlfriend's here or his wife and he's got two kids and she's crying and like we need c car you know and um this is your first call first call Solo. Ever, um with somebody else oh, but okay. they were like it's your turn <laughs> And a uh, guy was probably like three or four years older than me, so right along the same, it's right along the same idea that like, you know. And I remember like being like ready to go, and the person's like, relax, relax, relax. And uh, it was like a really weird thing. So the girlfriend's there crying. He's in the hospital bed, not really feeling the entire conversation or being in the hospital or the fact that he just lost his job, not really feeling any of it. And then my coworker just goes down and sits next to my coworker just goes down and sits next to um, the wife. The wife, and they're just sitting there, and just our presence alone. There's no chairs for me to to sit, and I just like didn't know what to do, and like so I just did what I you know we just do what we do, and uh, (laughs) so I'm like, you know, he was extremely embarrassed, and I'm like, I totally understand how you feel. You know, like I've been, you know, like very embarrassing situations. And then, you know, I was like, I don't know why I said it to him. What, why any, you know, I'm like, listen, so like, here's the deal, right? He's like, I was in recovery before I was sober. I was, you know, this and that. I'm like, so here's the deal is that like recovery is like the number one. I don't even know where I got this from either. Recovery is like the number one, right? Like you can take and you can put all these things behind it, right? Like a job, you know job, girlfriend, wife, kids, cars, like, right, you could put your zeros, their place, you know, their placeholders, right? You could take that one and you can grow that one into a million, right? And, you know, but the thing is, you get rid of that one, that recovery, right? You have a bunch of placeholders, right? The zeros only add value to the one. The one doesn't add value. To, you know what I mean? That's so, brilliant. And <laughs> I don't even know where I got it from either. Yeah, you do. No, I don't. Maybe you. I probably. Well, no, I never said anything no. like that. That oh, was yeah. definitely spirit inspired. I would say it just took over. Then mm-hmm. I laid it out, and I'm like, recovery's like that. Number one is recovery, you know. And he and like wouldn't look at me because he was like laying in the bed like this, but he heard it. And I said, you know, here's the thing: is I'd love to talk options with you when you feel better, because I know you don't feel good right now. Here's my number. Call me, and I took all his information and called him the next day didn't answer texted me back though and was like hey listen i still feel like an asshole for what i did don't want to talk today I said no problem 803 that next morning my phone rang and it was him and he said i gotta make a change and i gotta do it now 
what do I do? And I said, well, I don't know. <laughs> what do you want to do? All right. And uh, he was like, this is going to bring it back to Manchester, too. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, so I was like, this is what I did. I loved early morning recovery. I'd wake up early. He goes, great. I don't have a job right now. I can go to a you know, 7 a.m. meeting. Going to a 7 a.m. meeting connects with these people at Pathfinders who are like, listen, you just lost your job. Great. We have a Christ Pathfinders Christmas party here every year and they signed his kids up to get Christmas gifts from Pathfinders and the old timers would pitch in and get the newcomers mm -hmm. kids gifts. And, you know, I remember going to that party and I walk in and they're right up at the front row. Kids are screaming, happy, happy, happy. And he looks back at me and he gives me the thumbs up and he says, thank you. And his wife's crying and they're saying, thank you. And I'm like, listen, you know, it's not, don't think, you know, it's not just me, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's everything and everybody, you know, but it's the connection to the recovery community, right? It's uh, and that was one. That was my that's first my one. one. Yeah, your placeholder, if you will. Yeah, your one. But out of the thousand that you've, or plus more that you've seen, when you think about that many people, what are the feelings that go through you? That you are, you came from where you are, and now, for three years, have served more than a thousand people and their families. What What do you think? I mean, you can't run from this. It's crazy. I was in Boston one time at a recovery conference. Helped a kid get into a detox, never seen him ever again in my entire life. You know, here I am at a young people's conference in Boston going down an elevator. Guess who's standing at the bottom of the elevator with his hands open like this, waiting for me because he seen me coming down the elevator as a recovery. Been sober ever since that detox I got him into. Said something about something he'll never forget of what I said. Or my family's grateful for that. Like, you can't run from this. Here I am 500 miles away from my house running into the people I've helped in the emergency room. You know what I mean? Like, you know, everybody, it's, it's just goes on and on and on. Like you can never, you know. How do you keep your ego in check? It's not me. There you go. And I also don't, I also don't like recovery famous people. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I love what, love, love teachings of them and stuff like that. I hate, I hate the, I would hate to be the idea of like being recovery famous. Right, because of why? Because I'm sober now. Because I do well. So when you say recovery famous, what what does that mean to you? What do you think? What are you talking about? Don't ever like me because I got sober. Like me because I do what I'm supposed to be. I do what I do for the community. I don't do it for me. I don't do it for an ego show. I don't do any of this stuff because none of that, none of that stuff really matters anyway. You know, I do all this stuff because like. And I don't even know, like some days like I get up and I don't even want to do it anymore at all. But then like some, some wind hits the sails that was like in some back way. And like <laughs> next thing you know, I fall in love with recovery again or I fall in love with this way of recovery. I fall, you know, it's not, you know, it's not this big ego show. Like I'm here to serve and like, you know. Recovery first. Recovery first. Hashtag recovery first. Hashtag recovery first. So you just accepted a new opportunity with CCAR. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that and what uh what your what your plans are. So awesome. Um I'm now the young adult and family services manager at CCAR. <clears throat> I like it under the idea to develop, manage, and provide recovery support services, recovery support services to the young adult and family communities within the whole recovery community that's kind of how i see it right now mm. um it's really cool it's definitely my passion it's right up there um got a really good monday night family support meeting five o'clock on zoom right at ccar.us i'm starting a young people's meeting tuesday at 5 p.m on zoom we're gonna get that thing rolling out um young adults meeting so what does young adult mean to you if you feel like you fit in, like I think, like you're a young adult when you say you are. I, yeah, I, I don't. I don't feel like I fit in, but I would want to go. Yes, we know. Well, uh, well, I got the maturity of like a 15. 14. I was gonna say fifteen. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I my sponsor got sober at twenty one, right? Mm -hmm. So like he fits I got sober at twenty eight. Twenty eight, right? Yeah. You know, like I don't know. I feel like I always be a member of the young adult recovery community. Right, because I got sober at twenty-two. That like, there's this uh, distinctive hmm. identification that happens at that certain age. You know, we're like, I kind of think about how, like, it's like 
it's like the same, but it's a similar but different aspect. You walk into a room and you got a guy who's 55 that got sober at 45. He sits there and like yells at the the young newcomer that like get it now, get it while you can. He's sitting there like wondering like is it too early? Can I go on another? Mm. Can I ever have fun again? Right? It's a really weird dynamical aspect that like I feel that like. Even at 45, I could sit there and identify identify with the 21 year old newcomer. That's wondering. a great point. That's a, I never so, heard that before. So but what you know that so, makes sense to me. That it's not so much the age bracket; it's more about the timing of when you got sober. You, yeah, when you found recovery and it's and it took, and and you're still working the program of recovery. I, I appreciate that because that I got sober at 26. The height of my, my drinking took off in college. So mm-hmm. working with the young adults at, at UConn, it's my heart because I I can picture where they're at. I can picture lying in my dorm room, not able to move my body, but my brain was awake because I was so drunk. That's really good, TJ. I love that feeling. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I'm just losing it. You didn't. Li- did you like the feeling? No. Well, see, I don't understand because I did. What if I was just like <laughs> lying comatose, or just with my thoughts and couldn't move my body, I'd be like, "Wow, this is cool." Well, I was too worried about what people would think about me. That is not a problem that you have. No, I don't have that problem <laughs> ever. <laughs> I mean, you guys got a really cool dynamic, though, as like. It was being a person who was an interviewee, right? Like <clears throat> receiving an interview, it's like the good cop, bad cop kind of thing, but Who's like the a good different, cop, but in a different aspect. Yeah, is she the good cop? Who's the good cop, TJ? I don't know. It's yeah, it, it's yeah. it's yeah, yeah, it, no, right. it's still oh, like a, it's a very weird. It's not a very weird. TJ, it's very cool TJ, dynamic. TJ, we've like been it. married longer than you've been alive. That's awesome. We are old enough. Well, literally, wait a minute. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> we we are old enough to be your parents. When did you turn? <laughs> out, when did you turn twenty six? Yeah. Turn twenty seven. Yeah. You're twenty seven now. Last week. Yeah. All right. So he's a. He's We're a, gonna be married twenty seven years in a couple weeks. Right. Oh no, we were. We are. That, yeah. Oh, you that guys was beat last me. week. Did, gosh. <laughs> what date? Yeah, to twenty fourth. Oh, okay. Twenty six. Close. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we years? we know I'm the good cop. Mm-hmm. There's there's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. So as we uh, get near the end of our time and wrap this up, I'm curious what you might say to like families or young people that are pondering recovery what is it what is it you want them to know and it could be many things that's a lot it is a lot that's a that's a boom question yeah um that's why they pay me the big dollars to be the the (laughs) to be the podcast host right Um, and Sandy had some awesome questions as well. All right. see? No, yeah, see. <laughs> That's why um, I like you, TJ. <laughs> is he your favorite so far? Oh, don't even. Try. <laughs> <laughs> this is how we ruin our family life for the kids. So we're just gonna skip over that. Um. So the question was going back about what would you like families and/or young people to know if there's someone struggling with an addiction in their home. I'm just telling you right now that recovery is always worth it. Mm-hmm. As hard as it may be some days, recovery is always the answer for me. You know, recovery saved my life. Recovery done so much for me. Um, I'm grateful I stuck around long enough for good things to happen because it's hard in the beginning, and it takes time to develop. Um, and the best is always yet to come. That's my favorite saying, that Frank Sinatra song. Because mm-hmm. um, the best has yet to come, you know? I Our think lives, I love what you say about that, too, because early in my program, it was more about you heard that there were, if you continued to use, you ended up with three options. Jail, mm-hmm. you were there. Institution, you were there, like the treatment centers. And you came close to death a couple times, right? Probably more than I can count on both my Jail's hands. institution or death. Mm-hmm. And that's where addiction and using will lead. It's a disease. 
And that's why it's called a disease, because if you continue in the disease, you will die eventually, or you'll end up in jail if you're lucky, or institution. But the fourth way, and what CCAR is all about, that we talk about all the time, is there is a fourth way, and that's recovery. And we are learning more and more that people have the option to define recovery for themselves. It doesn't necessarily have to be the 12-step abstinent way, right? That's worked for many, many, many millions of people probably. But there are other ways emerging, and that's what our coaches are very skilled at. Um, how do you, and the last question. That's fine. How do you make, take care of yourself today as far as recovery goes? What do you, what's part of your recovery tapestry? What's it look like? I, I really love what you, I just want to comment on what you mm -hmm. said before because I really love that. You know, a lot of people are anti-harm reduction. I came in, I was 12, 7, based. I was, I was like, listen, that's the biggest crock of crap I've ever <laughs> seen about any of this stuff. And then I heard somebody say, well, you know what? Why don't we try and keep them alive long enough for them to find a solution? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, damn. Like, that hit me right in the chest of my heart. And my, my completely different perspective has been changed for, like, three years now. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Especially in harm reduction and, like, you know what? Like, let's keep them alive long enough for them to find a solution. I support harm reduction. I think it's wonderful, especially in my new role. Um, my tapestry, I'm a 12-step guy. I love my 12-step fellowships. Um, grew up in 12-step fellowships. Um, met my girlfriend in 12-step fellowships. Like, you know, my brother, my we're all 12-step fellowship. My whole family's 12-step fellowships. Like, there's like you know, 12-step literature on my nightstand, mm -hmm. you know, like every day, like 12-step, like I just love it so much. And the, one of the biggest things it says in my 12-step literature is we don't own the monopoly on God, right? We don't have the market cornered on recovery. So it teaches me and like, it teaches me that I don't, I don't own this thing, right? This thing isn't to own, right? And uh, I hope people, you know, um, I'm, I went back to therapy. I love therapy. I think therapy is always a great option. Connections, the way out of addiction, you know, no matter what it is. I, like, I got a lot of friends in, like, I'm in one 12-step fellowship, and I got a lot of friends in a different 12-step fellowship. Um, Christianity, I love it, you know. Um, very good, you know, a lot of being connected to people, they teach you so much about so many different things, you know, and, like, you know, I love my faith. I love where my faith has brought me from connection to it. And um, it's just it's just a lot, you know. You've talked to me, too, about some spiritual experiences. And mm -hmm. you've had spiritual experiences not only in the fellowship but outside in churches. Uh, how do you connect today? That was my. That was a really cool spiritual experience. One time I was, I <clears throat> one time I was in church, and they were singing "Amazing Grace," and like I remember being in that and like holding that book, and like all of a sudden like, my body had like, I don't know how to describe it, but like my body had become frozen, and like my my I got the goosebumps, and I was singing, and I was holding the, and I was holding the, hymn, hymn book, and like I was crying in it. I was crying so hard that like my tears were staining this hymn book. So this church has this hymn book that is now stained forever on Amazing Grace with my tears. And then I look over at my buddy who's also in recovery. He's doing the same thing, crying. He can't even keep it together. We're all crying. It's hundreds of people singing Amazing Grace. And then they sang like, Amen over Amazing Grace. And then praise God. And then like, you know, I listen to like the Valerie Boyd or version of that. Or I listen to like the... <clears throat> the um, Aretha Franklin version of Amazing mm. Grace, and I could feel that feeling that like that like there was like like I had been giving for, like cause saved God saved a wretch like me right, you know, and like mm -hmm. I knew I had been redeemed. You know, it's about a guy who the original Amazing Grace is about a guy who um, you know was a slave ship captain, and all of a sudden he like had a, a experience where he's like, yeah, this is crazy bad. And turned the slave ship around and freed all the slaves, right? And then, like, wrote this song about, like, being saved and this idea of being saved that, like, 
like that's what we do, right? When we when we feel we're saved and forgiven, like we save and forgive others, right? Mm-hmm. That like <clears throat> that's what you know. My I love the prayer of Saint Francis so much. Like right, like help me bring light where there is darkness, and like you know, in forgiving we are forgiven, right? And like doing all these things that like in helping others I am helped, right? Mm-hmm. That like it's not about the money. It's never been about the money. It's never been about whatever. That like. Because you know how many late night phone calls I picked up that never hit my timesheet, you know what I mean? And like all that, that like, you know, people trust me and like, you know, it's it's just really cool. Like it's really cool to like bring the solution. Well, TJ, I know that whenever I hear your name or see your face at, at a C-car event or wherever else we might be, that um, it just brings me joy. You know, you're one of the walking miracles that I talk about all the time and um, I know that you have a role in so many other walking miracles around us. So keep doing what you do. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me out today. I appreciate you guys, and I got a lot of love for this organization and you guys' family as well. Likewise. And it's always cool to uh, – Joshua does ask about you, and he's super proud of you as well. We all are. Thank you. That, uh, you're a good man. Continue. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Recovery Matters. We hope that you've connected in some way with what you've heard. For more information, you can find us on the web at ccar.us. Like and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at ccar, the number four, recovery. And use the hashtag recoveryfirst to show support for our mission. Fire feeds fire. So if yours is burning right now, reach out and share it with someone.